Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Pastor Dave and worship team, and good morning, Grantham Church. Good to see all of you in worship. If you're visiting with us, my name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. Would you join me in a quick word of prayer that the Lord would open up our hearts and speak to us? Father, we we ready our hearts to receive this message. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you empower us to be your people? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. About a week and a half ago, my family and I came back from vacation in Texas, and uh, on the way home from BWI, which had been a, a long day, uh, we, we started off in Houston, we flew, caught a connecting flight to Dallas, and then to Baltimore, and we have, of course, two little boys, eight and five, and for the most part, they did pretty good. I, I actually think they did better than their parents <laughs> with, all of the, with all of the traveling. And so it was about 10 o'clock or so when we had left the airport, and uh, it was late, and I'll partly blame it on the, the, the headlights of my wife's car. We were a little bit older car, and so the, the headlights, you know, lenses are a little foggy. I cleaned them later on, but they were a little foggy. And so, and I had, it's been a while, I think, since I have driven that far and driven at night just because of everything that's happened in the last year. Needless to say, I took a wrong turn leaving the airport, and I, I ended up in downtown Baltimore, and I kept waiting for the GPS to do its thing, you know, and I, and I wasn't trusting the GPS. I felt a bit like Michael Scott, you know, from the office. Uh, so I'm wondering, is this going to turn us around? I knew we were going in the wrong direction, and it didn't take long once we got off the freeway and was on the street that uh, now I probably would have been a little nervous that was I by myself, but I was especially nervous that I had my whole family in the car and I'm in a neighborhood that I don't know. And, it, and frankly, folks, it looked a little scary, right? And so I'm, I'm stopped at this red light. I'm watching the GPS. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of this. And I'm looking around. I'm, I'm pretty observant. And, and I'm noticing this isn't a good place to be at this time of night with your family in the car. And of course, my boys are oblivious to this. You know, they're just not aware of those kinds of things just yet. They're having a good time. Uh, and I see out of the corner of my eye someone coming up to the window. And I see them enough to know that something's not quite right, you know? So it makes, makes you a little nervous. I could also tell that this person wanted some money. Now, 
we've been in these situations before, not at this time of day and in this, this place, where people have come up to the window and we've gladly given them money. And our boys have witnessed that, right? So they've experienced that before. And so I'm looking ahead. I see what's happening, but I've got, I have to ignore this. And I've, I may have locked the doors or made sure that they were locked because uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I can hear my son in the back saying, Daddy, are you going to help him? <laughs> because we've done this before. Well, I, I'm ignoring him, and I eventually get past, and there's a little bit of ruckus in the car, so, you know, some, some confusion, and I start to hear some crying in the back. <laughs> and our eight-year-old is upset because we didn't help this person. And he said, nobody should not have a place to live, and nobody should not have food to eat. Well, this just broke our hearts, but I'm trying to stay calm after a very long day and explain to our son in the best way I can. They've recently watched a movie. Uh, you see that movie, Dennis the Menace? Uh, there's a robber sort of thief in that, and I try to relate it to that. We're not in a good place. Daddy didn't know where he was. We didn't know what that man could have done. You know, trying to explain this. But I still, as we left there and found our way back to the road and eventually made our way home, uh, I still was impacted by that, my wife and I both, that children really grasp the mercy and the grace of God in ways that many of us adults don't, right? Uh, we, we've, we've grown wiser, more mature, whatever. But I can't help but think about this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 18, verse 16 and 17. Jesus said, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Over the next couple of weeks, I'd like to share a two-part message on the mercy and the grace of God. And not just the mercy and grace of God for ourselves, but how God has called us to extend mercy and grace to others. What is mercy and grace? You might be thinking, aren't those basically the same thing? Well, let's think about that for just a moment. Both mercy and grace are gifts from God. Let's look at this. Mercy is about forgiveness and pardon not getting the punishment that we deserve. You might think of it this way. You've probably heard it described as the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve. And I, I look at that a little bit differently than some of maybe my Reformed friends when I think about the wrath of God. I simply think about how God has uh, woven it into creation, into the system of things, that when we buck His will, when we rebel against the Lord and what he desires, his goodness, his will for humanity, then we accrue for ourselves wrath. That is the consequences. I mean, some Eastern religions would call it karma. Right? We are building up, we are, we are sowing things that will reap uh, uh, consequences that we would rather not uh, see and experience. So I think that that's what's going on. So mercy is us not getting that. All right? Now, grace is about blessing and empowerment. So it goes further. 
It is about getting good things that we don't deserve. So mercy frees us and grace empowers us. Think of it this way. Picture a prison cell. Mercy is pardoning someone. So charges are dropped against us. The cell door is opened and we're free to go. Our record is cleared. Hallelujah. And so we can begin again. Grace says, here is some food. Here's some clothes. Here's a driver's license, a new identity. Here's some family and friends to help you and be in community with. Here are some keys to a car and a house. You see, both are gifts that can be accepted, and watch this, also rejected. God can open up our cell door, but we don't have to walk out. See, confession and repentance is involved in receiving the mercy and the grace of God. But make no mistake, this is God's heart toward us. And he wants it to be our heart toward others. But unfortunately, it seems that our society is short on mercy and grace these days. In fact, I'd say that America has a mercy and grace problem. I mean, think about this with me. If we're honest, we have to say that the U.S. was born in violent revolution. And because of that, it is really in our DNA uh, that we perpetuate the myth of redemptive violence. That is that violence will solve our problems, right? Take the issue of slavery. Slavery, bad. I think we'd all agree. The UK dealt with that a little differently than we did. And I suspect that some of our ongoing problems with racism is a result of that. Because violence doesn't solve problems. In fact, it can, it can make problems worse. So we as Americans tend to think of justice as retributive, right? Eye for eye, the lex talionis, the, the Latin, the law of retaliation. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll recall. Think of it this way. We think of justice as Rambo or John Wick, don't we? And look, I'll be honest, I, I, I like some Westerns, so whether they're Clint Eastwood movies or like a Kevin Costner movie with Robert Duvall, Open Range, or, or, or the classic Tombstone, there is something in us all where we're like, yes, give it to them. <laughs> and we think that this is justice. But God shows us something different, a restorative justice. We're going to see that today in this message. So back to what I was saying. America has a mercy and grace problem. The U.S., think about this, is the world leader in incarceration. The world leader. Over two million people are in jail right now. Twenty-seven states in the U.S. still practice capital punishment. So here's what we do. We say, killing is bad, don't kill. And to prove it, we're going to kill you. Right, I get a picture, an image of a parent carrying around a belt, hitting one of their children and saying, don't hit your brother ever again. It's like, what sense does that make? 
Our country aborts over three quarters of a million babies each year. America has a mercy and grace problem. Almost 50% of marriages will end in divorce because you can't make marriage work without mercy and grace. Over 27 million Americans don't have health insurance. Almost 34 million people live below the poverty line. And over the past several years, the number of refugees admitted to the U.S. dropped by 86%. As we've all seen, our political parties, regardless of which, which one it is, have thrown mercy and grace out the window. It's just about winning, and it's just about power. Of course, if you really want to see us at our worst today, look no further than social media, right? Let's be honest. I saw not too long ago there was a guy who worked for an electric company, I think it was in California, who had his hand hanging out his, his uh, work truck window. Someone just happened to take a picture of him when his hand was doing something, and it looked as if it was the white supremacy gesture. Somebody posted it to the social media, a, a, a digital social media mob formed, and before you knew it, the, the guy had lost his job and his reputation was tarnished. And he said, I hang my hand out the window all the time. I wasn't even aware of what I was doing. And by the way, the guy was Latino. So this is kind of where we are today, isn't it? And, and I could give you lots of other examples. We've all seen it in cancel culture and how we, we lynch people digitally on social media. What is happening? Why are we lacking in mercy and grace today? And I'd submit to you that this is a, a multifaceted problem. Number one, and I think we should start here, we've lost the biblical concept of sin. You don't really hear that word anymore, right? I mean, I could, I could point you to a fairly popular preacher who has a lot of people in his, his church, if you want to call him a preacher. It would say, he doesn't like to talk about sin. Right? He'd rather just preach positive messages. But there's something wrong with that. So I would say we've lost the biblical concept of sin, and unless we recognize the depth of our own sin, we cannot know the depth of God's mercy, grace, and love. Now, some of the church still talks about sin, but we're really good at talking about other people's sin <laughs> and not our own sin. And this has some to do with why evangelicals' reputation is what it is today. Uh, number two, we are polarized. And we are trapped in our echo chambers and our social media algorithms so that we tend to think we're right because everything we're seeing affirms our worldview, our perspective, and our beliefs. And if it doesn't, we simply unfollow. So we don't have to see it. And we don't have to hear it. And we've lost the ability to have a conversation and to disagree with each other and to be civil. A third reason, I think, is we live in a hypercritical, judgmental culture, sort of the American Idol reality TV shows where we nitpick and tear apart every little thing we see in here. You've probably even caught your mind doing it this morning. Why did he pick that song? Why is she wearing that? Why did he do Why is he preaching on that? Ugh. Whatever it is, we do it constantly. We're conditioned to do this. 
And so we, we as a culture, look to scapegoat and, and uh, transfer our sins and our blame onto others. I saw this uh, Bible movie once where it uh, depicted this in the temple. It was actually Herod, Lord knows he needed it, went and grabbed a hold of the horns of the bull and put his forehead to the forehead of the bull. You know, or you could say a goat. We, we try to do this to others and we pass the buck. We pass the blame, the shame, the sin onto others because it diverts our attention away from ourselves. Our hyper-individualistic, self-centered society is another reason. We are convinced that we're okay the way that we are and that we, we, we need to accept ourselves. I talked about this a few weeks back, our, this self-esteem movement. We just need to accept ourselves and express ourselves. We call it expressive individualism. It actually has a term. That that is probably the most noble thing that you can do in secular society today is just express yourself, and everybody has to be okay with it. And if you're not, you're intolerant. <laughs> this is the highest ideal in our culture, and it contradicts the values and the worldview of the gospel. And you know, our society isn't all that different. From ancient Rome in the time of the early church, mercy was seen as weakness. It reflected a character defect because mercy involved pardoning the guilty and providing help or relief to those who haven't earned it. It was seen as contrary to the Roman view of justice. Mercy was only given by children, by the naive and the weak-minded. It reminds me of what Sensei Kreese taught his Cobra Kai students. Some of you will appreciate this and know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you can search it. Sensei Kreese said, we do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. Here in the streets, in competition, a man confronts you. He is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. But folks, listen, whatever version of this you see in the world, the Bible teaches us that God is a God of mercy. Thank him for that. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You see, the gospel tells us that without his mercy, none of us can stand. According to the scriptures, without God's mercy and grace, both receiving it and extending it to other sinners like ourselves, we, along with the world, are headed for hell. We'll not be able to escape the wrath to come when the curtain of the cosmos, uh, of the cosmic stage, finally drops and the show is over. If we do not acknowledge our own sin, see our need for God's mercy, receive it, and give it away as we've so graciously been given it through the cross of Christ. So we need to reflect on this for our own salvation and for the salvation of others. You see, because the world is not going to get along, that is, go down the road much further, if we don't embrace this. And we can't expect the world to embrace it. This is the job of the church. And you can see then why it is so vital. The church is going to be agents of mercy and grace and true believers in the gospel amidst a merciless and graceless world. We have to accept this and extend it to others. 
If you have a, a phone with you, you can take a picture. You might take a picture of this. I'm not going to look at all of these scriptures this morning, but here's just a snapshot of both the Old and New Testament of some key passages of scripture that talk about God's mercy and our call to be merciful. Let's look at a few of these together, and then we'll look at our main passage there in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. The prophet Isaiah said this in chapter 55, verse 6 and 7. He said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Another way you could read that is while you're still breathing. (laughs) Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. What a great promise from the prophet Isaiah. You know, the prophets were always pointing us forward. The law was good. It served a certain purpose, but the law could not save. If anything, it revealed our sin. And thank God for the prophets who saw past the law on to the mercy, the grace, and the love of Jesus Christ. You know, King David said it this way, for all of David's faults, and we'll look at that a little bit this morning, he was called a man after God's own heart because he he understood this about God's character. King David said, don't let me fall into human hands, but rather into the hands of God, because God is the one who is merciful and forgiving. Even when David had sinned greatly in committing adultery, you remember with Bathsheba. He's supposed to be off at war. He's on his rooftop watching Bathsheba bathe. He, he wants her. He has her come to his house. He sleeps with her. And so that he, he's not found out, what does he do? He has her husband put on the front lines of the army and killed. And after David is found out by the prophet Nathan, Nathan's going to tell a very similar story in the manner of what we're going to see Jesus do in Luke 7 today. And David knows he is found out. Later on, he writes this psalm. It's one of the most familiar psalms, and it ought to speak to all of our hearts as it really captures the character of God and our own depravity. Psalm chapter 51, verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. David is saying, ultimately, I have offended a holy God. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me I know is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you. Then 
I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I'll joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look how telling this is, church. A a people that were dependent upon the sacrificial system, yet David sees through it and realizes what he really needs to do. And he sees how good God really is. May that be the prayer and the cry of our heart this morning. Listen as the mercy of God and our calling to be merciful comes through in another Old Testament passage. This from Micah 6, 8, a passage that many of us are familiar with. Micah the prophet said, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now pay attention to what Micah says and doesn't say. Micah says, act justly. He doesn't say, love justice. Now we should want justice. God is a God of justice. But this is very insightful, the way Micah says this. We are to act justly and to love mercy and do it humbly. Notice that holding justice and mercy together in humility, right? I'm a sinner, creates a unique kingdom approach, a unique kingdom approach. This justice is restorative, not retributive. This justice is about healing and setting things right, which requires confession, forgiveness, and repentance. It's not about our vengeance. It's not about revenge. It's not about payback. It's not about getting even. And it's ultimately not about the law and order of human governments. Now, why would I say that? Because here's the thing. They do not operate according to restorative justice. And frankly, they can't. You know, while there is certainly a divine purpose for government and laws to suppress evil, to ensure that people are treated fairly, and some people, if they don't have a sign and there aren't consequences, they're not going to drive the speed limit. Some who don't have a law and don't have consequences will kill you. And so laws are there to deter sinful, broken people who are determined to do what is not right. And so the Apostle Paul says that's the purpose of the government, Romans 13. Remember, though, that is, it's not the role of the state to follow the teachings of Jesus and his model for the radical upside-down kingdom. When Paul wrote that, he wasn't expecting Nero, who we suspect was the emperor of the time, and think about how terrible that guy was, to, to obey this. It is for the church. And if the church doesn't do it, no one will. 
Because brothers and sisters, it is the church's job, it is our calling, as Paul wrote in Romans 12. And you do know Romans 12 comes before Romans 13 where Paul calls us to be agents of mercy, grace, and love before he talks about the role of the state. And Paul is saying, understand your role and get it right. And it isn't that we completely neglect, neglect, you see, I, I am an Anabaptist, more thoroughly than maybe some of you. And I don't think that that means that the realm of politics is totally off limits to us. We should navigate it with care and with wisdom. But folks, if you've got all of your trust and confidence in that system of justice, you will be disappointed over and over again. Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Where is your faith? That's why Jesus said this to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount when he called us to something much different. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and through 3, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the little speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the two by four coming out of your own? Listen to what Jesus is saying. You see, what Jesus is really forbidding us to do is to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what that tree was all about. It was about trying to sit in the seat of God, to see things the way that God sees them. Yet we find that we are empty when we take from that tree. We are incapable of running the universe. We are incapable of rightly judging and seeing into a person's heart. In fact, this tree and taking from this tree makes us judges over others and simultaneously condemns ourselves. The problem with judgment you see in our nature is this. Number one, we have a distorted view of ourself. I hope that you can acknowledge that this morning. Our view of ourself is distorted. We don't see ourselves rightly in light of the holiness of God. And number two, we, in order to judge, unlike God, we must compare and contrast ourselves to others. I told you, go sit on the bench in the mall, or we did some sitting at the airport, watch a bunch of people walk by, and be aware of how your mind is constantly running and judging others. And it's like this nonstop, isn't it? In order for us to feel good about ourselves, to feel righteous ourselves, we compare and we contrast, and the Lord is calling us out of this system. And then there's a problem with judgment in our society and politics. It will always reflect, hear me, it will always reflect the broken, sinful people in them. Now, while some nations are better than others, and some do a better job at this than others, they will always be broken and always fail us in some way or another. And it isn't to say we shouldn't strive for it, that we shouldn't testify to the kingdom of God and what is right and just and true and good. But again, don't put all of your cards there. Don't put your energy and your hope and your trust and your faith there. It will lead you into cynicism. It will lead you into despair. Only so much can and will be accomplished through worldly means. That is why Jesus is calling the church to be his called out community. Look at this. Called out community of mercy and grace. Not of judgment, 
but to carry our cross, not a sword, but to carry our cross, to love mercy, not the gavel, to love mercy, not the gavel, to see a justice that restores everyone involved. One who can weep for George Floyd and an African-American community, but can also have mercy and weep and want restoration and healing for Derek Chauvin. Folks, the world can't do that. And frankly, we don't have it in us to do it until we've come into the holiness of God, seen our own sin, and how much we need God's help. Until we begin to see ourselves in Derek Chauvin, until we begin to see ourselves in the perpetrator, then we cannot know the mercy of God or extend it to others. Amen? Or oh me. So this begins by being people who are honest about how we measure up to God's standard. Paul said that in Romans 3.23. You remember this verse? You probably learned it in Sunday school. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and living in a way that says to others, we know that we are the worst of sinners and that God has lavished his mercy out upon us. And that is what Paul was getting at when he told his young Padawan learner this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, he doesn't want you to forget it, in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Can you say that, church? Can you say that this morning? You, you think about the worst sinner. Who comes to your mind? I mean, somebody that you just have a really hard time loving. You feel like he's blown it. They're, they are the symbol of what's wrong with this world. And can you look at that person in your mind's eye and say, I am worse than that? Because until we do, we cannot be what Christ has called us to be. And the world will not come to Christ in the church. The world will run from us. But it's not what the Lord wants. I, let's be honest. I mean, there may be some folks here this morning who think, you know, I think it's fairly reasonable that God would love me. I mean, I'm not really that bad. I've not done this. I've not done that. I've been in the church my whole life. I mean, you know, I may gossip and lie a little bit. I may search on, some, on Google some things maybe I shouldn't be looking at. But, you know, I, I'm okay. You say, you know, I, I'm not that bad, at least not as bad as some others I know. Well, folks, <laughs> can I say to you, to us, that's the Pharisee in us. You remember them? Remember the Pharisees? Let's look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up there. We'll rest there at the end of our message. This is our primary scripture text this morning, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. 
Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And since Jesus is not a guy to turn an invitation down, he goes. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a, an alabaster, a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Now your translation may say a sinful woman. Uh, some may even say a prostitute. We believe this to be the town prostitute. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, so they're reclining at the table, much like this picture you see on the screen. They're reclining at the table, feet outstretched. She comes up behind Jesus, and she pours out this expensive perfume. Luke tells us she began to weep, and her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Like her hair is as a, is a, is a rag or, or, or a, a towel. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, pay attention to that. He didn't say this out loud. He said this to himself. In his head, he thought, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, we get the idea that this Pharisee we're told in a moment here his name is Simon, invited Jesus to his house to learn about who Jesus is. Not real sure, if is he from God? What's he about? Is he on our side? And you can already see this, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil at work. What's this man about? If he were a prophet, like some are saying, he would know this woman is a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. If that doesn't weird you out, nothing will. This guy thinks this thought, and then Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one from whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right. Jesus said, he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, which would have been customary, which would have been expected for a guest. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, which would have been customary and standard in that time, but from the time I first came in, she has not, not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. You hear what Jesus is saying? If you look around the church, if you look around the world, 
and folks who have a hard time forgiving and extending mercy and grace, it says far more about them than it does you. It ought to say to us, this person has not for themselves understood the depth of their own depravity and their need for God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Because if they did, and they actually received it, see, for some of us, it's not a problem to recognize it. It's a challenge to accept it and receive it. But this is the God that we serve. And so Jesus says, her love for me is evidence she's received it. We get the idea here, although Luke didn't tell us before this passage, that this woman had a run-in with Jesus at some point. Maybe she heard him teaching. Maybe she was at the back of the crowd and heard what kind of person he is and the message he was preaching. She had a hunch that she could come to Jesus and do this and receive mercy and grace. And Jesus says, this is evidence that her sins have been forgiven, that she has accepted and received the mercy and the grace of God. And the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Because only God can do that. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My friends, look at how mercy opens the door. Mercy opens the door to forgiveness. It opens the door to reconciliation. It opens the door to restored relationships, to reconnection to God and to the community, to healing to the release of burdens and debts. You see, the, the, the world's way of justice is, is, about, is about collecting on debts, but the gospel is about re releasing us from the burdens of debt. Mercy opens the door to this. It opens the door to new beginnings. It opens the door to new seasons of life. Who needs that this morning? And ultimately, it opens the door to the kingdom of God. That's why, as James said in, in his epistle of wisdom, these words, mercy triumphs over judgment. So let me ask you this question. Which character are you in this story in Luke 7? Can I make a suggestion? Don't be like Simon, the Pharisee. See yourself rather in the sinful woman. And then let us be like Jesus who said this once again to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 9. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Do you recognize that you're sick? Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not your religious sacrifices. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, this is very countercultural, this message. How is it that we could arrive at a good place by starting at this place of recognizing how terrible we are? Right? Isn't that countercultural? But this is the gospel. 
And so how antithetical it is to the gospel to hear a message that drives us away from it, that would have us refuse to see the depth of our depravity and our need for mercy and grace. But you see, the only way to get there, to know the mercy and the grace of God, and to be able to live in it, and to be agents of mercy and grace and healing in the world is to start there. And my friends, you'll then be surprised, as I have been so many times in my life, that God will set us free. He will clear the slate and let us start over again. Amen. Finally, let's think about some of these steps as we respond to the message this morning. Number one, and this is what I'm inviting us and challenging us to do. Number one, come as you are to the God of mercy. The Lord of mercy, church, invites us to come as we are and bring our burdens with us. I'm reminded of this passage in Revelation chapter 4. Remember, this is John who's on the island of Patmos. He sees this vision of heaven. It's as if the curtain of heaven is pulled apart and he sees into that heavenly realm, the throne room of God. And he describes it as this brilliant light, various colors and gemstones as he's trying to describe what he sees around the throne. And one thing he says in chapter four, verse two and three, he says, he saw an emerald rainbow. Now, we know what rainbows stand for in the Bible. They're symbols of mercy. And emerald is a soothing color. John is saying, even though I looked inside and saw the burning of God's holiness, I then saw an emerald rainbow emanating from the throne of God, inviting me to come. It reminds me of another passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. The author of Hebrews says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Secondly, first come as you are to the God of mercy. And secondly, consider your own sinfulness in light of God's holiness and the cross of Christ. As I said, stop comparing yourself to others and sit in the presence of a holy God. And you need to do this for an extended period of time. I've, t- I've talked many times about the TV show Alone I've been watching. And one of the things that comes out through the episodes of that series, these people who go out into the wilderness to live in isolation and to see how long that they can survive. After a number of days, Everyone realizes they can no longer drown out all of the stuff that they've not dealt with in their life. It bubbles up to the surface. And this is one of the harmful effects of our society. We're always going, we're always busy. Now, I don't know if we do this consciously, but certainly subconsciously we do this. We stay busy so we don't have to sit alone with God long enough to deal with the junk. So I encourage us to do that. That's part of that sitting in the light of God's holiness. Take some time to sit and to do what Isaiah said when he was in the temple and saw the glory of God in chapter six, verse five. He said, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
You know, while we may mean well, our busyness, as I said, is often used to avoid the silence and avoid looking in the mirror and being honest about who we are and where we're at with God. And as long as we do that, we won't find rest for our souls. We won't discover his mercy and have any to give to others. So let's do that, church. Let's do that and know that for ourselves. Lastly, number three, let's commit to loving mercy and blessing others. You know, when you've acknowledged who you are, standing alone before a holy God, and you've experienced his mercy for yourself, let it inform the way you relate to others. Believe that mercy triumphs over judgment and trust in God's power to change the world in this way instead of the way of the world. Exchange the gavels of your heart for the gospel of mercy, the way that truly changes. And church, have only one opinion of yourself. I am the worst of sinners, and yet Jesus died for me. And then have one opinion for everyone else. They are loved by God and worthy of Jesus dying for on the cross. And in this way we do as Paul commanded us in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, if we'll do that, we'll truly live. We'll begin to see healing in this world. And others who acknowledge that they are also sinners in need of a merciful Savior will join us in the kingdom just as Jesus desires. Amen? This is the gospel for God's people. Let us receive it and apply it to our lives. Lord, our sins, though they are many, we know that your mercy is more. God, we come to you as we are, recognizing that we're made in your image, but we're broken and not as we should be. Help us now to consider our own sinfulness and how we have fallen short of your glory, to sit in the light of your holiness, to stand at the foot of the cross, that ground which is level. And we, we know your goodness. And may that goodness and mercy that we experience now drive us to love mercy and to bless others. For it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.